Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hello, my friends. I am back to continue on with the Understanding Autoimmunity series. There is some ruckus afoot. We are getting our hot water heater and boiler replaced. So there's clanging and banging in the background. All apologies. I've tried to hold off as long as possible, but I'm just going to, I just got to go for it. Hopefully you won't be able to hear it too much. I don't think it should be too distracting for you. It's just a little distracting for me. Last week, we took a little bit of a break, a little bit of a pivot to invite on Jessica Flanagan Brown. And this is kind of like, I did this intentionally. There's, there is a bit of a method to my madness, but I wanted to talk to her because the week prior we talked about food and diet. We talked about how our food system really can influence our susceptibility to autoimmunity. It's like one of the answers to why is this group of illnesses so much more commonplace than they used to be. And so what can happen uh, when somebody gets diagnosed with an autoimmune illness, or maybe they they have autoimmunity in the family and they're trying to prevent it, is that they can find healing through healing diets. A lot of these healing diets are really restrictive and they are made or they're created for short-term use. But that piece, that little nugget oftentimes gets lost in translation. And so folks go on these really restrictive diets long-term. And there's a whole host of problems with that from a physiology standpoint. And I've unpacked that on shows prior to this quite extensively, but there's also um, mental and emotional challenges. And this is something that Jessica has seen quite a lot in her practice over the past four to five years, or maybe even longer. So I wanted her to chat a little bit about this, especially because today I'm going to briefly touch upon food sensitivities as part of the overall autoimmune picture. And what I want to be really mindful of is understanding that autoimmunity is a process and food is one part of that process, but it's not the only part. We want to be really careful that we're not blaming food for what something else did, or we're not making food the only area of our intervention and our focus. Today, we're going to talk about mechanisms of how autoimmunity gets switched on, and you'll see that it's more than just a food picture. We're also going to talk about functional lab testing to help identify underlying triggers. A few weeks ago, we talked about just basic labs that you can have your primary care doc to, and now we're going to get into the functional lab testing 
as I promised that we would. I will say that my intention behind this episode, it's more education-based. I'm trying to help you connect yourself to resources rather than just pitch my own services. But I will say that all of the labs that I'm going to outline here, we do run those here at The Functional Nutritionist. And my team is really well-versed in autoimmunity. So you're in good hands. If you're at the point where you're looking for a functional provider to oversee your care or to work as part of your healthcare team. So just a heads up, what I'm not going to do is talk about treatment strategies just because that would be really irresponsible of me. There's no way that in an hour long show, I can tell you how to care for your body, right? So I'm not going to do that to you because it wouldn't be responsible, especially when we're talking about autoimmunity. You really want somebody thinking critically about your case and looking at all the moving parts before they give you like blanket recommendations. I will link out to some relevant episodes that goes more into, you know, in-depth detail that can really help you out here. Now, I already know this is going to be a longer episode. So just, just a heads up, like get a beverage ready, get some trail mix, get comfy in your car. If you're going for a long drive, get your walking sneakers on, like <laughs> prepare to tuck in. Cause this is a long one. This, this one probably took me the longest to organize. By the way, this autoimmune series is taking me way longer than I anticipated. It is a big project. So I really hope that it's really helping people. Okay. So I do want to say that before we get into high level functional lab testing, before you go that route, before you start thinking about supplement protocols and working with functional providers, you absolutely can and should start with lifestyle basics. Um, I often refer to it as lifestyle medicine. These basics, these fundamental building blocks of health can make the difference between remission and relapse. These factors make a huge difference in flare-ups. This stuff is powerful. It's effective and it matters. So be sure that you're working on the basics. So eating, hydrating, sleeping, moving. I will say that sometimes labs can sort of be the stimulus or the impetus needed to actually do these things. There's something about seeing concrete evidence of what's going on inside your body that like motivates you to make change. But if you're not there yet, no worries, work on the basics big time. An example of this is exercise. So sedentary behavior, not good for autoimmunity. RA is the condition that's most studied because this population of people are in a lot of pain. And the, the research is pretty clear that more movement is associated with less flare-ups of this condition. And inactivity or sedentary lifestyle actually worsens symptoms of RA. When we move our bodies, we're improving circulation, we're improving blood flow, we have better immune regulation. It increases opioid production, you know, like that runner's high. You don't have to run in order to get it, but you know what I'm talking about, those feel-good chemicals that get released when we move our body actually help to turn on T regulatory cells and that dampens autoimmunity. Anything we can do to increase our opioid production, like those feel good chemicals really help to support T reg cells. So that's two thumbs up from an autoimmune perspective. And like I said, it doesn't have to be hard running. It doesn't have to be intense exercise. It can be walking. It can be lighter activity. We know, and I've talked about this on the show before, that exercise 
is a stressor and intense exercise can increase oxidative stress. That's not necessarily a bad thing if you're healthy and you have low inflammation, but with autoimmunity, we have inflammation that's sort of unchecked and that additional oxidative stress can make you feel worse. So when it comes to movement, we really have to kind of find our own unique threshold, our own specific capacity, given what we're going through. And this can change, you know, from season to season in your life, but exercise really important. So if you're listening to all of this and you're like, gosh, I don't, I don't really have the mental, the emotional capacity or the financial capacity to take on these, another practitioner or find these functional lab testing, really work on the basics. Another one I'm going to really, I'm really going to make a case for sleep. Sleep is an immune modulator. There is no supplement. There is no medication that can do for your immune system what sleep can do. And we're going to quickly interrupt this discussion to shout out one of our show sponsors. As a reminder, the support of our sponsors is what allows the Functional Nutrition Podcast to continue to pump out new content to you. So we always thank them. We hope that you support them too. If you'd like to conquer sleep with Ned's dream set, Functional Nutrition Podcast listeners get 15% off with code FUNK. Go to helloned.com forward slash funk or enter code funk at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash F-U-N-K to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. All right, back to the show. There is a 47% increased risk of autoimmune disease for those who have sleep disorders. It just shifts your entire physiology. It puts you into a more inflammatory response. We're essentially like priming our immune cells when we sleep and then our sleep rhythms. So the cortisol melatonin uh, rhythm really modulate your immune system. Both of these hormones impact your immune system and they have to be in balance in order to have appropriate immune function and immune regulation. So I always think about cortisol and melatonin, like the sun and the moon, or it's kind of like a yin and a yang. When we wake up, cortisol spikes and then it slowly tapers off throughout the day. And in the evening, melatonin, there's an uptick in this. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here. This episode isn't about sleep, but just understand that working on sleep is huge. In my experience, the number one cause of sleep imbalance is dysregulated blood sugar. So if we can regulate somebody's blood sugar, if we can get them sleeping better, this is a slam dunk win for autoimmunity. Okay. If that's something that you need help with, the carb compatibility project is starting the very first first or second Monday in January, uh, but it's starting in January. And so stay tuned for that because that is a program that is supportive of autoimmunity. It's a nutrition program. We're trying to manage your blood sugar, which absolutely supports and enhances the immune system. Okay. So as I've talked about before in this series, there are different contributing factors to autoimmunity. My concern is that when I talk about mechanisms of autoimmunity, some of what I'm going to discuss can make you fearful of like just existing in the world. It's like, oh gosh, like bubble boy, like the world is out to get me. We're all doomed, but that's not true. And that's not the case. The immune system doesn't just dysregulate. Okay. There are always multifactorial things leading up to the onset of autoimmune disease. I'm going to talk about a concept of molecular mimicry. And so there might be one trigger like a bacterial infection, for example, but 
it probably wasn't just the infection by itself that turned on autoimmunity. And that's really what I want you to understand in this episode as we explore these different mechanisms of how autoimmune disease develops. There's a line that I'm going to read. This is from an article that I'll link up. Uh, And I think this really explains what I'm trying to say. The interaction over time of genetic, epigenetic, and environmental factors increases or decreases the liability an individual would have to develop an autoimmune disease, depending on the misbalance between risk and protective effects. So we have to start thinking about illness, about chronic illness, about autoimmunity as more of a dynamic process. The disease process is a process. It happens over time. And so it's not like one day you're running around and you're perfectly healthy and you come in contact with an illness and then all hell breaks loose and now you have autoimmunity. It is a process that happens over time. And that's why we spent time in the last part of the series exploring what sets the stage for autoimmunity. Because we want to support the overall immune system to prevent autoimmunity from being turned on in the first place. And in most cases, the same things that we do to try to prevent autoimmunity are what we can do to heal autoimmunity, to put it into remission and to prevent flare-ups. I think a couple of quotes from Gabor Mate's latest book um, really highlights this. He says, chronic illness is to a large extent a function or feature of the way things are, not a glitch, a consequence of how we live, not a mysterious aberration. If we could begin to see much illness itself, not as a cruel twist of fate or some nefarious mystery, but rather as an expected and therefore normal consequence of abnormal, unnatural circumstances, it would have revolutionary implications for how we approach everything health related. So that's what part three was all about is saying like, Hey, there's this evolutionary mismatch. The way that we live our life, our external environment is not what our genes and our immune systems have been primed for. So of course things are running amok. So if we can really understand that and make decisions in our day-to-day life that are more in alignment with our own health needs or requirements for health, then we are more likely to prevent or reverse the autoimmune process. So hopefully I have laid the groundwork thoroughly enough for us to dive into the next portion of this conversation, which is mechanisms of autoimmunity, how autoimmunity gets induced or turned on. And the very first place we're going to start is molecular mimicry. Molecular mimicry is basically when foreign antigens have structural similarity to self antigens. So things outside the body look like things inside the body, our own proteins, our own tissues. So this is molecular mimicry. It's also called antigenic mimicry. Our T cells, which are an immune cell, have the ability to respond to different peptides, small protein structures, in a similar fashion. So what essentially happens in molecular mimicry is that we can have a bacterial or a viral antigen come in and our body creates an immune response to that. But then that results in activation of T cells that are cross-reactive with self antigens, meaning our own tissue. So we're basically responding, having an immune response to our own tissue as though it were a bacteria or a virus that we're trying to attack. This is what I was like, so this could feel scary, but molecular mimicry is unlikely to be the 
only underlying mechanism for autoimmune uh, response, okay? This could be like the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back, but there's usually a long lead up to autoimmunity that kind of lays the foundation to this dysregulation of the immune system. But I'm going to give you some examples of human autoimmune illnesses that have potential possible molecular mimicry as a mechanism. This is not a complete list, but I'm just going to give you some examples. So some of the infectious agents that are associated with rheumatoid arthritis are Klebsiella, Candida, Clostridium, Staph aureus, Campylobacter jejuni, Borrelia, one of the tick-borne illnesses, Epstein-Barr virus. So you'll actually hear Epstein-Barr EBV come up quite a few times because viruses can turn on this molecular mimicry process as well. Uh, we know that viral infections and autoimmune disease have long been linked. Um, so we'll see it again in lupus, right? So lupus, the turn on event can be Epstein-Barr virus. But as I'm saying this, it's important to note that not all RA patients are going to have this mechanism. Not all lupus patients are going to definitely have this mechanism. I've been saying this time and time again, the frustrating part about autoimmunity is that there's a lot of question marks. And because it is a process, it's not as easy as pointing to the one thing that did it. So we're just trying to collect information, understand the different mechanisms and say, geez, which could potentially be yours. Okay. So for autoimmune gastritis, which essentially attacks the parietal cells, H. pylori can be that turn on event for molecular mimicry in type one diabetes. So that's insulin-dependent diabetes, the target attack site is the pancreas. And we've long known that usually some childhood virus is the thing that kicks this off, right? So it could be rotavirus, uh, herpes virus, rhinovirus, some type of different virus that kind of kicks that process off. Um, with MS, there are really interesting studies that show a connection between MS and Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, we also see link with measles and human herpes virus six. But I want to talk, I want to zoom in on the Epstein-Barr MS link. There was a Harvard study that looked at records from the military. So active duty soldiers have to do blood samples every two years as part of their routine medical screenings. So it's a really good population of people to look, you know, if you need medical records, they're there. Uh, so a team of researchers studied more than 10 million active duty U.S. military personnel between 1993 and 2013. So they looked at the subject that had been diagnosed with MS and almost all of them had been infected with Epstein-Barr virus. So out of 801 MS cases, only one person tested negative for EBV, which is pretty wild. They were looking at EBV samples collected before the MS onset, I should say. This team calculated that people infected with Epstein-Barr virus were 32 times as likely to develop MS as uninfected people. Then there was a Stanford study that isolated B cells from uh, cerebral spinal fluids of patients with MS, and they isolated antibodies, and they found that these antibodies were firing on the Epstein-Barr protein. So this is molecular mimicry. Basically that protein from the Epstein-Barr virus has a similar size, has similar shape, a similar structure to the human glial cell protein in the brain that is getting attacked in MS. So what's happening 
is that the antibody that our bodies make is trying to target the Epstein-Barr virus protein. It's saying this doesn't belong here. We got to tag it and flag it for destruction. We got to get it out of here. But when it's doing that, it's actually hitting human cells. This is that cross reactivity that we're talking about with molecular mimicry. So obviously it's the human cells that are becoming inflamed because our immune system is targeting them. And that can drive neuroinflammation, that can drive the demyelination, that's a hallmark of MS. And so essentially the reason that this is happening, the reason that this is getting turned on is because the immune system is trying to target Epstein-Barr virus. So hopefully that helps you to understand molecular mimicry or cross-reactivity a little bit more. And it's part of the reason that when we're doing testing for autoimmunity, when we're looking to identify our root cause, our unique triggers, we are looking for some of these infections, for some of these chronic low-grade infections, both viral and bacterial. There's also the bystander activation of autoimmunity. And again, the most common cause of this is from some type of pathogen or infection. So an antigen comes in, it gets a T-cell response, and this releases cytokines, an inflammatory cascade that's part of the immune reaction. But it's so aggressive that it actually turns on other immune cells, and it creates this overall overzealous over-aggressive response. So if somebody gets an infection and then they cannot keep it contained because their immune system isn't healthy enough, that leads to an overactive, overzealous response. So the immune system's just kind of like out for destruction and it can start to destroy self-tissue. We can start to create autoantibodies. So it activates T cells without antigen recognition, meaning it doesn't really know how to determine friend from foe. It's just like pew, 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 killing all of the things. So the infection might be the triggering event that turns on the autoimmune process. But again, it's a process that was a lead up to this. The immune system wasn't healthy to begin with. So we have to ask why. And that was what the purpose of part three was all about. What is setting the stage for autoimmunity? So then when we do come in contact with a pathogen, it kicks on this widespread immune dysregulation. So again, it can make sense to look for these chronic underlying infections, but I just want to say, and that's what we're going to talk about with the next section, which is functional medicine lab tests, but just getting rid of the infection doesn't necessarily turn off the autoimmunity. Okay. But it can be hugely helpful and definitely should be part of the overall treatment strategy. So functional medicine lab tests, let's dive into it. I do want to say just a few disclaimers. You really shouldn't be doing all of these tests all at once. I'm going to talk about a lot of different ones. There really needs to be a strategy based on your unique symptoms, based on your health history, your intake, how things are presenting for you. And on top of that, and I really can't stress this enough, you must be working with somebody who knows what to do with the information. Lab testing is basically useless unless you have somebody who can analyze it, given your unique context, and strategize a plan based on the data. Okay. So that's really, really important. And again, I'm just going to shout it out one last time. The most important place to start is with lifestyle, with diet, with the fundamental basics, without lifestyle medicine. And so you can do that with us through the carb compatibility project that starts in January. If you want to get started immediately on something, we have the eat to achieve program. It's 21 days of whole food nutrition. We also have our one-on-one services. Okay. So 
Since we were just talking about molecular mimicry and autoimmunity being turned on by a pathogen, a really great lab to assess for this is from a company called Cyrex, and it's their Array 12. It's the Pathogen Associated Immune Reactivity Screen. So this detects immune reactions to key pathogens. And I'm going to explain that in just a second. And there's a number of different ones. I don't exactly know how many it looks at, but it looks at Candida, Campylobacter, H. pylori, Klebsiella, Giardia. It also screens for some viruses, uh, rotavirus, CMV, EBV, herpes virus 6, so different ones. Some of those things that I just called off, you're like, oh, maybe if you're familiar with functional lab testing or you're a practitioner, you're like, oh, hey, I've seen those on a stool test, like a Klebsiella, Campylobacter, Candida, Giardia, H. pylori. We might see these on a stool test. Just seeing the presence of these viruses or bacteria, these infections, does not indicate that you have immune reactivity to them. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Just seeing the presence of these things, whether on a stool test or otherwise, does not mean that your immune system is reacting to them. So you can have the presence of, let's say, H. pylori. That doesn't mean that you have an immune reactivity or that it has turned on this molecular mimicry process or that it's turned on autoimmunity, okay? But this lab, the Cyrex Array 12, is indicating that your immune system is mounting a response against these specific infections. So there is immune reactivity. So that would be a really helpful one to do if you're trying to suss out if there is a pathogen component. Epstein-Barr, we talked about that before. So you can do a very common Epstein-Barr panel, easy to get. And this, since it's such a common autoimmune viral trigger for people, it would be a good one to look at. Now you just want to make sure that you're doing like a full panel where you're not just looking at IgM. Um, you're looking at early antigen, viral capsid antigen, a full panel can really help you detect or help your practitioner detect if it's past exposure or an active infection, because that kind of matters. A lot of us have past exposure to Epstein-Barr virus. That doesn't mean that it's currently active in our bodies or that it's triggering autoimmunity. And then we have functional GI tests. So this is a big one. So chances are, if you have been in the functional medicine world for a hot minute, you know that there is a link between our gut and autoimmunity. As I've talked about before, it tends to be a bit oversimplified in functional medicine where it's like, oh yeah, all we need is a stool test and we'll get to the bottom of that autoimmunity. Bingo, bango. If only that was simple. So there are multiple tests you can do to assess for GI function. A stool test is a really smart place to start. So with the stool test, we're looking at what's happening at the level of the colon or the large intestine. Different markers on stool tests can indicate that the immune system is either suppressed or really acting up. Certain markers can show our digestive capacity. So it really just depends on what stool test that you're doing at this time. The one that, that we run the most in our practice is GI map. That doesn't mean it is the end all be all, or it's the only one to do. It's just the one that I happen to prefer for myself. 
then we could do a SIBO breath test. We know that there is a link between SIBO and autoimmunity. A SIBO breath test shows what's happening at the level of the small intestine. We can also look for anti-vinculin antibodies. This is a blood test, which shows autoimmune IBS. So if IBS was turned on by a bacterial infection, by usually food poisoning, um, this would show that that process is happening. The test that I like is called IBS Smart. And Dr. Mark Pimentel came on to the podcast to talk all about this, SIBO and IBS, um, on episode 181. So I'm not going to get into that too much. And then another really important one to look at is a gut barrier function test. So a test that's looking for intestinal permeability or leaky gut. So all of these can kind of come into the mix when we're assessing for autoimmune triggers. So let's really narrow in on intestinal permeability because no doubt you've heard a link between leaky gut and autoimmunity. So what this test is looking at is tight junctions, essentially. Tight junctions are where two cells join together to form a barrier. And as we talked about when we were discussing the immune system, barriers are big freaking deal when it comes to our immune health. Uh, they play a huge role in immune function. And so we have a barrier in our gut. Having this barrier be healthy provides protection against microbial invasion, against infections, against pathogens, but it's also, so it kind of acts as a physical barrier to like block things out that we don't want coming in, but it also is where a lot, in fact, the majority of our immune cells reside, is right there at the lining of the gut. I'm not going to get into the specifics of immune cells. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds, but just recognize that this barrier is able to recognize if there's any damage to this. It's a mucosal barrier. So if there's any damage to the mucus, if there's any damage to the intestinal cells, it's going to trigger a response from the immune cells that are down below, and it's going to trigger inflammation. And essentially, the whole purpose of this system is to tell the immune system to either stay quiet or to act up. Like, we're good, you know, be cool, honey bunny. Or, nope, it's like time to cause a ruckus, things are not good. In this whole ability to be able to calm down when the immune system should calm down and act up when the immune system should act up is known as immune tolerance. And this is a huge key concept to autoimmunity. It's connected to oral tolerance, whether we can react appropriately to food proteins, same deal with chemical tolerance, whether we can act appropriately to or react appropriately to chemicals and self-tolerance which is our own tissues. When we lose self-tolerance, that is the mechanism of autoimmunity, is that we don't recognize that it's self, and so we attack it. So we can get exposed to a lot of different things, a lot of foods, a lot of chemicals, a lot of pathogens, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to automatically trigger autoimmunity. If we have an intact gut barrier, we're going to be less reactive because essentially the immune cells have been primed to stay calm. If we have a leaky gut or intestinal permeability, if this gut barrier system is broken down, then we're going to have more immune reactivity because that system is essentially just telling the immune system something's wrong here. We got to act. We got to act. We got to act. Okay. And so we lose immune tolerance, which is not a good thing. And that's why you hear 
so often this link between leaky gut and autoimmunity. So doing some type of gut barrier test makes sense. The one that I use in my practice the most is the Wheat Zoomer. That's by Vibrant Wellness. Not my favorite company, not my favorite lab company. To be honest with you, I'm trying to move away from them as much as possible, but I really do like this one lab. I talked about it in episode 142, a little bit like what that lab entails. And then there's also Cyrex Array too. The cool thing about the wheat zoomer and why I prefer that test is because it's not just looking at intestinal permeability and differentiating like what kind of intestinal permeability you have, but it's also looking at whether or not your body is reacting to wheat and all of the proteins within wheat, which can be a trigger for autoimmunity in and of itself. It's also screening for celiac disease. So I do like that one. It's also showing whether or not there is presence of something known as LPS in the bloodstream. LPS stands for lipopolysaccharides, and it is wildly inflammatory. If this substance, which comes on the, it's basically in the outside of gram-negative bacteria, if it gains access to our circulation, to our bloodstream, wildly inflammatory, it basically activates toll-like receptors that turn on NF-kappa B, which is an or a regulator of innate immunity. And so if we see that we've got leaky gut, and we've got LPS in the bloodstream. This is also known as endotoxemia. This is like kind of a worst case scenario. And we definitely want to address the gut as part of our treatment strategy, for sure, without question. If you see leaky gut without this LPS, that's when you can kind of like think through the treatment strategy and like, do I really need to go here? Or are there other things that I should be prioritizing? Pretty common to see leaky gut, evidence of leaky gut in today's modern world. And so you just have to be able to discern at what point you actually intervene on it. Again, not the purpose of this conversation, but worth, worth mentioning. And then we have to talk about the microbiome because it's not just gut pathogens that can be a key factor in autoimmunity, but it's also just the overall microbiome itself, the balance or the imbalance, also known as dysbiosis. Um, so what we need, and we talked about this a bit in part three, what we need in order to have a healthy immune system is to have a healthy microbiome. A microbiome essentially trains and regulates the immune system. It controls certain cells of the immune system to prevent autoimmunity. It regulates the body's inflammatory pathways. It modulates the immune system. It protects against allergy development, food sensitivities, viruses, pathogens, and colonization resistance. So it's pretty big heavy lift for our overall immune health. And in order for these microbes to do all of these really important jobs and to have proper function, it needs to be diverse. So overall health of our immune system, of our gut, and of our bodies depends on diversity. And so when we don't have diversity, that's when we can see allergies, asthma, metabolic syndrome, depression, inflammation, and autoimmune disease. So one of the reasons why we run a stool test is because we are looking for whether or not your microbiome is diverse. It helps us to see beneficial species, opportunists. These are things that are not overtly pathogenic, so they're not necessarily going to cause problems, but if they have the opportunity to overgrow, they definitely can. It can show inflammation, it can show digestive capacity all on a stool test. So I do think a stool test is a really smart bet when you're trying to assess for triggers and um, root causes of autoimmunity. Remember that this is not showing immune reactivity like that immune reactivity panel, but it's showing you what's present. I do want to be crystal clear that 
solving the autoimmune puzzle is a bit more complex than just fixing a stool test or fixing a leaky gut panel, okay? But they are both part of the overall picture, if that makes sense. When we see evidence of leaky gut or we see evidence of dysbiosis, meaning an imbalance of good to not so great bacteria, as I teach clinicians in the Functional Nutrition Academy, we actually have to swim upstream. We have to go top to tail. So it's not as simple as swooping in at the level of leaky gut or swooping in at the level of the microbiome. Our digestive tract starts at the mouth and ends at the anus. And it really kind of starts at the level of the brain too. So we have to make sure that we're strategizing, I almost said strategizing, no, not a word, strategizing a treatment protocol that keeps all of this in mind. And since we're talking about the gut, we do have to give a nod to food sensitivities. One of the hallmarks of autoimmunity is unchecked inflammation. So we have to be really mindful and conscientious about overall contributors to our inflammatory load. And of course, diet can be one of those things. In part three, we talked about modern diet and how that sets the stage and contributes to the autoimmune problem. But on top of that, we do have to think about food sensitivity. So these are foods that our bodies are reacting to, our immune systems are reacting to. And if we're eating foods that our immune system are reacting to it, it basically is activating the underlying inflammatory response. And this is why we can see food sensitivities having different effects for some people. For somebody who doesn't have a lot of inflammation in their body, food sensitivities, they might be reacting to foods, but they might not cause a whole lot of problems or a whole lot of symptoms. But with autoimmunity, we know that there tends to be a lot of inflammation. And so eating foods that the immune system is reacting to can flare up the autoimmune response and really flare up and trigger symptoms. Food sensitivity testing is not the first place I start, but it can be part of the uncovering triggers for sure. I go really in depth on this whole thing in episode 214, food sensitivity, symptoms, testings, and all the complexities. There isn't one best test for food sensitivities. And that's the thing to understand. It's more about the interpretation of the test because these tests are, can be a little tricky to understand. So I'm not going to recommend one specific food sensitivity test. Definitely listen to that episode if you are if you want to get more information, but it can be part of the overall autoimmune picture. Sort of generally speaking for autoimmunity, if we're not doing tests, I do tend to take out or at least trial doing a gluten-free, dairy-free diet for like at least a month. Milk proteins and gluten proteins can cross-react with our own tissue. So there's that molecular mimicry concept once again, except this time we're not talking about bacteria. We're talking about food antigens and food proteins. So if we're not going to do any testing for food sensitivities, I usually will just pull out gluten and dairy. So that could be a good point. And all of my uh, nutrition programs are all, for the most part, they're all gluten-free and most of them are dairy-free or can easily be done dairy-free. So if you haven't trialed something like that, that would be a really, really good thing to do just to see how your body responds. Again, the wheat zoomer can actually tell you whether or not you're reacting to gluten proteins or proteins in within wheat. Cyrex Array 3 also looks at that. So definitely something to consider with autoimmunity. 
And we can't forget our show sponsor, Element. I'm so pumped to hear that you guys are digging this stuff. I knew you would. It's so freaking tasty. I did get a question about sodium. Somebody asked if I was concerned with the sodium content and the answer is not at all. In fact, that's why I sought out Element as my electrolyte drink of choice. Active athletes, especially during hot weather, can lose up to seven grams of sodium per day just through sweat alone. And in order to replete that, to replace that, we need both water and sodium so we can reestablish appropriate and proper hydration. Listen, it's summer here in New Hampshire. It's hot. I'm active. I like to do hot yoga. Honestly, on my hot yoga days, I actually double down on Element. I know many of you are active as well. So this is something that we really should be mindful of. Salt has been villainized. It's not the bad guy. We need salt. We need minerals. We need electrolytes. And if you want to do it in a yummy way, Element is your thing. So right now Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. So that's eight packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try the flavor, see what you like. And you can get it at drinkelement.com forward slash funk. The deal is only available through my link. You got to go to drinklmnt.com forward slash funk. You also get no questions asked refund. So Try it risk-free. You're going to love it. And to all of my Organifi loving friends, get excited, get ready for Organifi's newest product, green apple juice. Yum. It's like a healthy apple juice with all the benefits of the original green juice. If you don't love the taste of the original green juice, this one is for you. It's made with organic apples that are hand-picked, Golden Delicious, Northern Spy, Macintosh, Ida Red, and Empire. So real deal apples are up in this blend. It also has the added benefit of 600 milligrams of ashwagandha, which is an adaptogen that helps the body cope with stress and can balance out cortisol levels. It also has really potent and nourishing green plants like moringa, spirulina, and chlorella. It's so good. You're going to absolutely love it. Order it today. Head to Organifi.com forward slash funk, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash funk, and you can save 20% off your order with the code F-U-N-K. And now I'm going to shift gears and we'll talk about chemical and environmental triggers, specifically environmental chemicals. How do these guys turn on autoimmunity? Because we are all getting exposed to chemicals all the time. Chances are just about every single person has them in our body to some degree, and not everybody is going to end up with autoimmunity. So what's going on here? There are multiple mechanisms of how exposure to these things can turn on autoimmunity. There's different things happening. So chemicals or exposure to chemicals can really deplete our antioxidant reserves. It can deplete glutathione. Glutathione's huge for autoimmunity. Uh, it can cause oxidative stress. It can create inflammation. It can lead to dysfunctional Treg cells. It's kind of a lot of things happening in the body with chemical exposure. Now, there are chemicals that our bodies have the ability to biotransform. That just means our liver pathways, uh, these chemicals can go through our liver pathways and be cleared out of the body. But then there are chemicals that our body actually can't biotransform. It cannot break them down. It can't metabolize them. So heavy metals is an example of this. So if, if our liver is not able to clear these out of the body, then they can build up. They stay in the body and then they can build up. And the more 
these chemicals build up in the body, the more likely it is to lead to some type of immune reactivity, especially if you have underlying stuff going on. So we want to talk about the difference between chemical load and then chemical immune reactivity. So we talked about this a little bit already in relation to pathogens, right? So just because you have H. pylori present in your gut, for example, does not mean that you have immune reactivity to it. It doesn't mean that your immune system is launching an attack against it. Insane deal with chemicals. You might have a body load. Another way to say this is body burden, right? How much do you have in your body at any given time? And body burden is really just like our overall exposure to certain chemicals and then our ability or our inability to clear them out. Because uh, some of us have great hepatic biotransformation pathways, just a fancy way of saying detox pathways, and some of us do not. And some of that is genetic and some of that is more uh, circumstantial. But if we have a high exposure of these chemicals, and we have a not so great ability to clear them out of our body, again, they can stay in circulation. And if they stay in circulation, if they stay in the body, it's more likely to trip up our immune system. It's more likely to become immune reactive. And so when we see immune reactivity, that means the immune system is actually reacting to the chemical. And this usually involves chemicals actually binding to a protein because it's important to understand we can't create antibodies to a chemical. But if a chemical binds to a protein in our bodies, that can change the protein structure and we can create an antibody to that. Because once the structure of our one of our proteins is changed, the tissue now appears like a foreign invader to the immune system. And so the immune system creates antibodies against it, tags it for destruction and removal. This is the process of autoimmunity when our immune system is attacking our own tissue. So this is one of the ways that chemicals essentially can turn on and trigger the autoimmune process. The, the most common area where this takes place, the most common protein in our body is albumin. This is the most abundant protein in our blood. And an example of this is BPA. So BPA, as you know, found in many plastic products, actually has a strong affinity for binding to our albumin protein, and that can start the autoimmune process. So there is like this huge emphasis on heavy metals, heavy metals, heavy metals. But we actually have to pay attention to other chemicals because those can oftentimes turn on autoimmunity as well. So exposure to plastics, huge, huge, huge deal. So we really want to make sure that we're reducing our overall chemical load. There's quite a lot of testing in terms of assessing if chemicals is part of your overall health picture with autoimmunity. So let me give you some. There's Cyrex Array 11, which is the chemical immune reactivity screen. So that's going to show if the immune system is reacting to chemicals. It will show if your body is producing antibodies in response to certain chemicals. Remember, this is very different than just showing overall chemical load. This is showing immune reactivity to these chemicals. Another test, this is the one that I would say we run most commonly in our practice, is the Great Plains uh, GPL Tox. 
And this is a urine test. So that Cyrex Array 11, that's a blood test, by the way. This is a urine test. And it's looking at 173 different environmental pollutants. So phthalates, benzene, organophosphates, uh, gasoline additives. It also includes a marker to assess for mitochondrial damage because we know that can take a hit with chemical exposure. So this is a great way to look at overall like body load. Uh, but again, it's not going to show you whether or not your immune system is reacting to it. So you just want to kind of figure out what the best option here is based on what's going on with you. Genova has another uh, lab that looks at toxins. And it just kind of depends on the practitioner that you're working with, if they have a preference, you know, what company they have an account with. I should have said this at the start of the show. I do not have any affiliation with any lab company. So I don't get like a financial kickback for saying, talking about any of these labs, by the way, just as a heads up. Um, Genova toxic effects, core effects. So that's a blood and urine test. That's looking at pesticides, solvents, organophosphates. Um, that would be another one to do, but it, it could be helpful to screen for your body load and, or your immune reactivity when you're trying to assess for like, what is my contributing factor to turning on this autoimmune process. And then we do want to look at potentially look at heavy metals. There are three main ways to look at heavy metals. There's a serum heavy metal test, so that's blood. And you can just get this as a, like a routine lab test through LabCorp. This is looking at whether or not you have heavy metals in your bloodstream right now. So are you getting active exposure to them right now? It doesn't necessarily show body burden, but it shows that it's active in your system due to ongoing or recent exposure. So it's still really useful and important information because some people will be like, oh, that doesn't really tell, tell you anything. Well, that's not entirely true. It does. If it comes back high, you know you're getting an active exposure, and so you want to find the exposure source. So that's blood, and that's usually kind of like the simplest way, but maybe doesn't give us the full picture. And then there's also urine tests to assess for heavy metals. And there's two ways to go about this, challenged or unchallenged. So unchallenged basically just means you pee in a cup, essentially. You're just looking at urine. And if these levels, if the, the levels of chemicals are high in your urine, it's showing that your body's attempting to clear them out. If you want to assess for overall body burden, arguably the best way to do this is with a challenge test. And so with a challenge test, it's still urine, but before you do the test, you are taking a chelator. So a chelator is something that binds things up. So you're taking something like a DMPS or a DMSA before collecting the urine. And I personally don't do this. I don't do this in my practice. And honestly, for myself, um, we actually just... <laughs> Speaking of heavy metals, uh, we just found out that um, my water, our well water, is high in arsenic and uranium. So I might come back and do an, a whole episode on on heavy metals based on my own experience. But I am not doing a chelator challenge test for myself or for my kid or for my husband. Personally, I'm just concerned with the risk. A chelator challenge test can pitch somebody into a flare or exacerbate autoimmunity. It's just not something that I really want to do, <laughs> take the risk with. I tend to be really conscientious and potentially like too conscientious when it comes to this, but I just think that the risk is so high that I'm not willing to worsen somebody's autoimmunity. Studies show that when you do use DMSA, you can redistribute metals 
back into your own tissue, especially the brain. So you just have to be really careful with this when it comes to autoimmunity and just make sure you're working with somebody who knows what they're doing. If you're going to attempt a heavy metals challenge test, and I would strongly recommend doing that chemical immune reactivity screen with Cyrex, because if that test shows up that you're making antibodies to, I believe mercury is the heavy metal on that, that would be like a hard no for chelation. And so you want to be working with a practitioner who really, really understands this. Some folks will use glutathione as a natural chelator. So that's something that you could talk to your practitioner about. Anyway, there's a lot of differing opinions here. This is not my area of expertise, but I want to have you at least equipped with some information if you are thinking about testing for heavy metals and working with a practitioner. The last thing that we'll talk about here is the really briefly, I'm going to touch upon the psychoneuroimmune response. We know that there is a psychological activation of immune response. And we will get into this a lot more in depth, probably in in next week's episode, because I think this deserves an entire episode dedicated to it versus just like a few short minutes at the end of an episode. It's that important. The fact that our stress, our thoughts, our trauma can activate the immune system is a really big deal and it should not be overlooked. And it is really overlooked. So I want to talk into this. We talked about the PNI system or the psychoneuroimmunology uh, and the HPA axis is essentially the hub of this PNI system. And so HPA access stands for hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access. I have a lot of podcast episodes all about this, uh, but we can, using functional lab testing, we can really look at the health of this HPA access. If we know that stress kicks off autoimmunity, if we know that stress exacerbates autoimmunity, we really should be looking at biomarkers of our stress response because we historically are not really great at self-assessing when we're under stress. So that's why I do like to bring in a adrenal test like precision analytical Dutch test is the one that I use most commonly because it shows so many different things. It's not the very first place that I start with folks with autoimmunity, but I, I usually do end up bringing it into the fold especially when somebody doesn't really understand the effect that their emotions and their stress response can have on their physical body. Uh, and this stuff isn't just like woo woo or like touchy feely. It's real deal, like backed in science. I'll actually link up a cool article, uh, the role of stress in the mosaic of autoimmunity an overlooked association And this essentially shows kind of like cliff notes, stress increases interleukin 17, which activates TH 17. This increases N kappa B and inflammatory cascade. So stress directly impacts our immune system and our inflammation. Like I said, the test that I run for this is the Dutch test through precision analytical. So this shows our adrenal hormones. This shows melatonin. Remember we were talking about the melatonin cortisol balance is really important for our immune health. It shows both of those. It shows our cortisol awakening response also important for immune function. It shows our sex hormones. Uh, there is a link between hormones and autoimmunity. Um, we know that autoimmune disorders tend to affect women during really high periods of significant stress. And so looking at 
our overall hormonal cascade can be part of the treatment strategy. Uh, we have fluctuations of hormones throughout the month and those hormone changes really can impact our immune system as can like big hormonal transitions, puberty, pregnancy, menopause, all of these things can influence our immune status. So I think I'm going to leave it there. I've been talking for a long time. Those are some Really, I wanted to not just tell you like, hey, go get these tests, but also for you to understand like what specifically you're looking for with these tests, like the mechanisms of action, how these things can contribute to your autoimmune picture. So I know that this was a bit of a doozy of an episode, but hopefully you hung in there and you're feeling a little bit more empowered with information to take to a healthcare provider or a practitioner to say like, hey, let's test for some of these things. Anyway, I'll be back next week with even more. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you got something from today's show, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.